This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of agriculture innovation. I want to start today by thanking our very first four to sign up for our new Future of Agriculture membership. That's Brian Hogue, Josephine Askew, Aaron Mitchell, and Jason Hitch. Really, really appreciate you all being pioneers on this new journey we're going down. If you'd like to learn more about that and you're listening, you want to join those four, you can sign up over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. Got some big things planned. I hope you'll join. As I thought this year about topics I wanted to go deeper on, the one that came to the top of my list was farmer adoption of new technology. Now, this won't surprise many of you long-term listeners because it's come up on episodes multiple times. All the great ideas on the show will get us absolutely nowhere if there's no real path to customer adoption. In most cases in ag tech, when we talk customers, we're talking farmers. Now, this is a really complex issue, and I'm not a farmer adoption expert. But as usual with me, I'm not the guy, but I am the guy who knows the guy or, or gal. So I called my friends over at Intent, who are ag technology adoption experts, and asked them to help me dive deeper into this topic. If Intent is new to you, it's I-N, the number 10, and then T, intent. Luckily, I convinced them not just to come onto the show and explain ag tech adoption to me, but to go a step further and give me access to how their clients, the ag companies, are working with farmers. And Intent has a Rolodex of over 1,500 of those farmers. Most importantly, though, I asked them to show me, not just tell me, how adoption happens. In a few minutes, you're going to hear from one of their farmer collaborators, Chad Rebelke, and one of their clients, John Grandin of Compass Mineral. But first, I wanted to ask CEO of Intent, Randy Barker, to join me for a few minutes to share just some high-level thoughts on customer adoption. He told me it all starts with the farmer and the recognition that not all farmers are the same. There isn't this one farmer monolithic creature, he said. So I asked him to share what they look for in farmer collaborators. You know, when we when we look for farmer co- collaborators, the, the number one the you know, most important thing is are they interested? <laughs> pushing a pushing an investigation or a trial or something on on a farmer never works out well. Hmm. So that's number one. They they need to be a vested and interested curious stakeholder. And and I would say the all our farmers really are. And that's that's how they stay with us is, you know, we, we're finding that group. Second piece is, you know, they have some attention to detail and and are pretty good at managing data. So, you know, they have that high curiosity, they can execute the plan, right? They can understand the agronomy, they'll collect and manage the data. Mm-hmm. And and I think the the final part is, you know, their commitment to follow through. And I think it's it's a softer part that's hard to measure, right? It's beyond curiosity and knowing what to do. It comes down to their truly vested stakeholders, not just in 
their farm and innovation getting better. They just want all innovation to be better, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. They want this, that they want farm innovation to improve significantly. So that always is exciting for me to find those people as you go, well, what a resource, what a resource yeah. for the industry, because with everyone saying, well, if the farmer's just, right, if the farmer's just bought this or if they adopted this practice or if they only did this, well, you know, most of them are pretty gung-ho. It's just really how do we rally around understanding that that segment of one, right? Each farm truly is is a segment and, you know, there's commonalities, but if you treat them as individuals and and think about how to modulate the offerings to meet their needs versus farms modulating their their operations to meet the product needs, you're going to see a complete tipping of of how things work. Well, what about on the company side? What's a normal engagement look like for intent? Meaning, what question or problem are they wrestling with that drives them to come to you? And then, what outcome are they hoping for in the other end? I wish there was a typical engagement, but a lot, <laughs> a lot of uh, it, it really comes down to a conversation, and it, it starts at the beginning of where are you, you know, as a company in your life cycle. So we work with very early stage companies who are still doing some pretty basic science and maybe looking at their first round of funding. We work with A through D round funded startups. We work with great companies like Compass Minerals, who are you know a pretty formidable crop nutrition company. And then we work with multinationals as well. So, you know, there's not much, they're very different businesses and they're at very different points in their life cycle. So we always go, you know, who are you wearing your business life cycle? But the one thing that's common and, and it's how we ended up with our tagline of accelerate adoption. Adoption is important to everyone, right? It's the transactional end game. And, you know, you have to address that regardless of where you are right. in the food chain. If you're a mega, uh, a multinational, you need to address that. If you're a startup, you definitely need to address it. So we, we always end up addressing, okay, how are we going to get better at predicting our rate of adoption? Because that's what drives, you know, funding, right? If I'm raising money, I need to have some perspective on trajectory of my adoption. If I'm a, a mid-tier or a multinational, I need to predict and forecast my sales so that I can understand my investment in my R&D and innovation tower, technology tower. So, you know, accelerating adoption is really important. And the only way that, that we can do that is say, well, let's get to the farm. Let's evaluate your, your technology on the farm. Let's involve the farmers in giving us that feedback that that the companies really need. And it's not always the, the most uh, flattering feedback, but if, you know, where we see companies be very successful is when they become very open-minded to that farmer experience feedback, they can respond much quicker. What are, what are some examples or an, an example of something you see companies doing out there with their adoption approach that you think, oh, wow, they need intent. They, they need our help. So kind of what, what's the old way? Yeah, I, I think the old way, which, you know, it comes from, you know, we're going to do all all the research, we're going to do all the, the small plot work, we're going to develop the software, we're going to get all the answers, and then we're going to take it to the farm. And, you know, we're either going to take it 
to the farm and we're going to have a big advertising budget and mass awareness, print ads, billboards, conferences. We're going to do that. Then we're going to hire 150 reps and then we're going to go to the ag, ag retail and that's going to work out. And if you just do the quick math on that, you go, wow, well, the cost of being wrong back in that development, we're going to develop it all, do it all when you get to market is really risky. So I see that as it worked when when products and innovation was slow, right? So if you take chemistry or, or seed or biotech, those were what I call long cycle innovation. And, you know, took a long time to discover a new molecule. It takes a long time to register a new molecule. And it usually, the only ones that would make it had broad mass appeal, right? Hundreds of, you know, 100 million acres globally. And, you know, that's a 10-year cycle. <laughs> well, with democratization of science and the ability to innovate very quickly, both on the technology side or the product side with CRISPR and mic microbials and the ability to develop software, it's so fast that the opportunity you know, it's changed. You don't, we won't, they don't have the luxury for a 10 year development cycle to, to get to business. Three years seems like a stretch or difficult to, to digest for most companies. So if that's the reality and that still seems like too long, then you need to get really efficient. And, you know, that's, we see a lot of need, you know, I think the old way is, it's just not even feasible from a business structure. And I think, using digital tools and really using those technologies to to connect with farmers and understand them on a one-to-one -one basis and be responsive to how they evolve that's that's definitely possible but it's it's a change in mindset that you're just going to build it all and then you're going to have a big splash and everyone's going to adopt it i think those days are are past us and you know like fighting <laughs> fighting the farmer to to change their fundamental culture or practice. It can be done, but there's going to be a lot of uh, waste and, and bodies along the roadside. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, you know, the opportunities to be, you know, much more precise and, and, and use what technology has given us. And that's what we see at Intent is it's allowed us to build a technology platform that allows us to be extremely efficient in collecting data, interpreting, interpreting data, but also communicating with farmers. I mean, if I could launch something on Twitter as a, as a platform, that would be really cool because <laughs> that's where it's happening. So it's changed. So, you know, maybe it's a, a little bit like, like they say, like water, just, just mm -hmm. go with the flow, <laughs> <laughs> right? Tough to fight gravity. Thanks so much to Intent CEO Randy Barker for joining me to share some thoughts on ag tech adoption. And now you're going to get to see what that looks like in practice. Chad Rebelke is a farmer in central North Dakota who is a great example of someone who is the right type of collaborative, intelligent, and curious farmer that any company would want to work with. Along with Chad, we talked to John Grandin, who is the National Agronomy Coordinator for Compass Minerals. I bet you probably have heard of Compass Minerals, but in case you haven't, they're an industry-leading global plant nutrient company. Chad starts the conversation off by describing how he got into doing trials. Well, I guess uh, to start out, like uh, we did trials with you know, just products, just ourselves, you know, not with, combined with a company or anything to start out with. I just wanted to grow our farm. And I knew that if we took on more acres, you have a lot of costs that involve there. So I would have rather increased our yield 
And, you know, the way to increase our yield was through trying to find alternative methods and methods that were going to help us in the future and are probably, you know, high tech and new, whatever you want to call it. We just started doing trials ourselves, you know, probably five to 10 on our farm of just unique products that we thought could have a, a place. And we just took it from there until we, I stumbled upon Intent here three years ago and got involved with Kevin and Randy and started doing trials with them. And I guess uh, the rest is history. To, to sort of kick things off here, John, what was you know the information you were hoping to get when you kind of went down this road that eventually led to Chad? Well, we have a lot of innovative new plant nutrition products. And one of the products that we had in our trials this year is a brand new seed nutritional. And, and again, we had just basically greenhouse data. We had some bench data. We had some preliminary or uh, legacy product data from when we tried this back in 2011 and saw some pretty fantastic results. We changed up the formulations, made them actually into a, uh, a seed, uh, a flow aid, so a talcum graphite replacement, but with nutrition. So we're very, very anxious to see at a field scale how that would perform, and then more importantly, how it performs when we teamed it up with additional products through the season. And we, we call that our EDGE program, where we it's a, it's a system systems approach, and it's not just a single product, it's several products working in conjunction with one another. Yeah. And one thing you alluded to earlier, but I was just hoping maybe you can go a little bit deeper into it before we move on to the to, to last year in that specific project is some of the challenges when things when things if companies don't get this right this R&D piece as far as working with the right partners and collaborators you know what what are some of the pains or the the cases where it doesn't go right what what are some of the negative outcomes that can happen if you get it wrong Tim probably the biggest negative outcome is a complete waste of time on everybody's part primarily the grower you know, if Chad has a bad experience with our product because we just didn't think it through far enough and he goes to make an application and it just totally plugs up his sprayer or, you know, issues that way, not only does it cost him some time and angst for that happening, it's also put a pretty bad taste in his mouth towards not only our product, but probably our company as a whole. And selfishly on my part, when things don't go right, we've now invested a whole year we have to wait till next year before we can try it again. So we, we try to go to the market with something that we're you know, fairly certain is going to work. It's going to win. We've got the formulations correct. We do do some tweaking in season with oh, maybe just some better instructions for how to mix or make applications. And a lot of that comes from feedback from our growers. And again, that's why we select the type of growers that we do is so that they're willing to give us feedback as opposed to have a bad experience and just never say anything or never complete the project. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And Chad, for you, when did this project that, that you've worked on with Compass Minerals, when did it first kind of come to your attention and what does that look like from a practical standpoint on your end? Well, I guess we started with them two years ago and we did a, uh, let me think here, uh, we did a soybean trial with them two years ago and then last year we did a wheat soybean and then I threw in some of their products on some canola ground and did a trial myself with that. I guess, you know, um, first of all, they've been great to work with. I mean, anytime that you can take a company that isn't afraid to fail and put it with somebody like me who I, I'm not looking for a home run every time. 
I want to learn with them. That's one thing that I really enjoyed with Compass is, you know, being able to throw ideas back and forth. And I think they're just as optimistic and excited to try new things as I am. You know, that 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 makes a partnership with just great, I guess. And how, how do you as a farmer balance the, you know, economic challenges? It's, it hasn't been a great couple of years for farm income and the farm economy. How do you balance that with your curiosity and desire to learn more when it's, it's kind of like, it, it, are there times where you feel like, boy, I just need to kind of hunker down here and, and wait this out and then I can get back to these curiosity projects? You know, how do you, how do you balance the two? That's something that I, I'm never going to balance. I mean, my curiosity and the way that we operate our farm is we're always looking for the new best thing and always trying to push our yields to the optimum limit. And I guess in the 10 years that I've been part of the operation, it's worked in my favor every 10 years or all the 10 years. I mean, even in bad year, if you're trying things that are new and you're trying to be the best farmer that you can be, you're always going to come off, come up or come off ahead. And I guess even this past year, we had a complete utter disaster in North Dakota. I mean, it looked like, you know, the world was ending up in this area during harvest. And somehow we ended up with the best yields that we have ever seen on our farm. And I contributed a lot to trying to take the next step every year and being optimistic and trying new things. Chad, on your end, from a practical level, so let's just use this past year as an example because I do want to get into some of those weather challenges as well. But from a practical level, when does the project start for the growing season? In a practical level, I mean, if we're looking at the working with Compass, in the back of my mind, it, it started when the harvest ended this past year. I mean, I'm already planning what fields are optimum for doing research trials. I'm already prepping those fields and making sure that, uh, you know, our, our weed suppression is under control. You know, tillage is the very little tillage that we do, you know, like bottom ground or working out some ruts or areas that we park the trucks, you know, is taken care of. And that's where it all starts with me. I mean, you know, I want to have the optimum place for these people to be able to trial their products. Great. And so looking at last year, Chad, just, just kind of talk us through, talk us through the, the, the project from your, from your end as far as what, what you did and what you found. Well, I guess it started with uh, seeding. We used a seed treatment on our wheat and soybeans. We used a, a liquid treatment. And then with our canola, we kind of did some brainstorming and figure out how to use our talc powder replacement to put into our seed bags to work it into the canola and seed it with that. Once we got the crop seeded and, you know, the trials all marked out, we went into herbicide application. We mix our product with our herbicides. We applied it. Then again, with fungicide application, we did the same project. And when harvest came along, I mean, uh, we were in drought conditions up till probably 4th of July. And then after that, the sky kind of opened up and we had uh, excess of moisture, to say the least. Right. And now for, for you, as Chad's kind of doing all this, John, you're getting the eyes and the ears that, that are going on. What questions are going through your mind as far as how things are going up there? Well, I'm thinking way beyond just Chad's field at that point in time. And I'm trying to think of, okay, what, what's unique about Chad's geography, whether it's this year's weather or if it's just the general pattern of you know being in prairie pothole region, 
or the fact that his soils don't thaw out until much later in the spring than what I'm used to, and uh, it, get, it gets cold a lot sooner. So what can we do to make the most out of a very, very compressed growing season compared with what I'm used to in the central Midwest? The other thing I'm trying to do is these observations that folks like Chad are making on his farm how can I interpret those and utilize those elsewhere? And not only just in North Dakota, but how can I move that around the country? What's happening physiologically with that plant when we made this application that I can apply to a blueberry plant or a cotton plant or a peanut? And Chad, how do you how do you approach the trial acreage differently than you do other acres, if if at all? What you know, what's the difference in mindset for you as a farmer? Well, in the trial areas, we try to keep them on our best pieces of ground. We kind of like to have, you know, the geography not as rough as our some of our fields. I mean, you know, we're trying to do them on our best producing acres, and that gives us a chance to really see what, you know, what these products can actually do. And last year, you, you kind of left off by saying, you know, you were dry as a bone until 4th of July, and then the floodgates opened up, and you got a ton of rain. How did that impact your ability to perform these trials? Well, mentally, it was exhausting because there, there's no nothing more that I wanted to do than to get all these trials off in good condition. You know, we, we trudged through it and um, we were able to actually get off all the trials that we had placed on our farm in um, so-so condition, I guess, or at least we were able to get data from it. But, you know, it was, it, it was a struggle. It, it I think mentally it was harder on me than uh, anything else just because I, I really wanted to get these off and I, I had been watching them all year long. So, you know, seeing what I had seen physiologically with the crop and how it responded, I really wanted to, you know, show that off in the yield segment at the end. And were you able to, to harvest all of your, your crop, both the trials and your own? In the trials we got off crop-wise, we had about 220 acres of canola left and about 40 to 60 acres of wheat that we weren't able to harvest. What do you think, Chad, are barriers for more farmers to to do trials this way on their farms? Well, I think that mainly it's two things. It's the want to succeed. I mean, it's a big time commitment and also technology. I mean, uh, you have to have everywhere from, you know, your, your air seeder, well, in my case, an air seeder or your planter set up with the technology the sprayer and the combine. So, I mean, it takes a lot to get done. And what what makes it worth it for you? Well, we're able to use products and uh, implement products into our farm that are probably, uh, you know, could be 10 years out for the average producer. So, uh, it's it's a huge benefit for us. I mean, some of these are paid trials, yes, but the the end result for us is we can implement these and see a yield boost way before anybody else understands how these products work. And for you, have you been able to incorporate things you've learned from the trials immediately into, you know, into the rest of your acreage? In a way, I kind of have a strict policy that I like to see two years of data before we go completely, you know, use a product on our complete farm. But, you know, if if a product shows enough promise the first year, I mean, we're definitely going to scale that up the second year. And John, from your your point of view, how will Compass? What actions will Compass take as a result of the data be, being gathered? Let's you know, let's say last year. How does that impact the plan going forward? And sort of what are the options on the table there? Well, obviously, I keep track of all the data as it comes in. I maintain uh, several scorecards. So whether it's an individual product 
trial or a complete systems trial like our Compass Crops Edge, I, I keep a, a scorecard, so a running total of where, the, where it was located, what the yield of the treated versus the untreated was, what, what yield difference. So if we're talking row crops, most of the times it's going to be bushels. If we're talking cotton, it's going to be pounds uh, and so forth. I look more at the percent increases as opposed to raw yield increases. That helps to equalize across environments and geographies. And then calculate out a, a return on investment. I, I look at what the added cost was, the added retail cost for our products would be versus the added yield and try to pencil out and, you know, did this actually pay off? And if not, where didn't it pay off? And if it did, let's be certain of it and look at the percent wins as well. So we don't expect to win 100% of the time. Our goal is to be 75, 80% wins, profitable wins. And so far we're doing that with many of our products. We've got a couple of products where that was not happening and that allowed us to investigate application timing. Again, taking it back to the plant physiology, understanding what's going on within the plant at that application period. And we concluded that, you know, that was just put on at the wrong time. And let's change our recommendation for when it's being applied, put it on earlier in the season. And the result this year on those products was a substantial improvement in our rate of success. And then all this information, good, bad, or ugly, Compass Minerals prides ourselves on the fact that we share it all. You know, we don't just share the wins. We don't share all the, the positives. We'll openly show places where we failed and as well as where we've won. Wow. That, yeah, that seems really unique. That's, that's really interesting. And, and what, is the, what is sort of the product R&D life cycle in terms of timing for, for, for you, John, for these products you're rolling out? Tim, we currently have some products that are in the pipeline that were essentially dreamed up a year ago and will probably be another, oh, at least four years before they're able to be introduced as a public product, if you will. Our Calc and graphite nutritional seed replacement, that took about seven months from concept to hitting the store shelf. And fortunately, unfortunately, however you'd like to look at it, it was such an amazing success. We had a difficult time keeping up with the, the demand last spring. We introduced it at Commodity Classic in February, uh, March rather. And if we didn't have a late spring, we probably would not have had the sales that we had because you know, we needed all that delayed planting to keep up with production. So that was, I think, on the unique side for as quickly as we rolled that out. It was a fairly basic product concept, if you will. Some of these other products that are going to take many more years, uh, it's a bit more involved, a lot more testing, but we're always, we're always developing. We work with a philosophy at our research and development center. We call it fail fast. So if any of our scientists have an idea, we say, go for it, you know, break it as fast as you can and then see if you can fix it or if you just need to put it aside and spend your time working on something different. And we've been very, very successful with that philosophy. And it is just, a, I, I enjoy going to the innovation center because the, the minds down there are totally different than anybody in agriculture. They, they to think totally different about the world. They think totally different about their problems in front of them and their solutions are very, very unique and innovative. And the, the end result of a, of a trial like what you've been doing with Chad there in North Dakota, do you write like a scientific report on this? How is the data shared? I'm just curious kind of what that looks like for you. 
Typically, we will put together internally here, we call them field facts. So we will take trial data like that, put it together on a a typically two-page document. And we like two pages. That's just typically what the what the community likes, you know, nobody wants to be overwhelmed with all kinds of, of paperwork. These trials like we're doing with Chad, I don't ever foresee those getting written up for any kind of a, you know, scientific journals or anything. Quite frankly, they would laugh at us for the way we do them because we're doing it on a more practical field scale as opposed to trying to do it on, you know, very tiny replicated plots and, and so forth. When we're developing a product, when we're working in the greenhouse, when we're working in the growth chamber, we use a more strict scientific method. And it, it's it's quite common that as the R&D team is developing products, they will look at that and say, hey, I think I might have something we can publish in in one of the journals. And they'll they'll take it from there. The other place where we'll utilize this is just in uh, in presentations. And quite frankly, we're in business to sell products. So when we have a system or a product that works, we want to put a pretty dress on it and back it up with the field data that we have and present it to our our customers. And John, for, for you, is there an element here when you're trialing with a farmer of not just what's the data going to tell us, but sort of what is the farmer's reaction to it? And are they are they sharing it with their farmer friends and are their farmer friends sort of getting interested in it too? Is there an element of that in this process as well? Oh, very much so, Tim. And that's, that's one of the criteria when we're working with intent for selecting growers. And I think they do this with everybody. It's not unique to Compass Minerals. They're looking for growers that are essentially the bell cow in the neighborhood. The, the one that the neighbors are, are looking to say, you know, what's that crazy chat up to this time? Because he's always doing something different. He's always got a story to tell about how some product really worked well, or boy, it was just an utter failure. But looking for somebody that is looked look to as a leader in the community. And then, you know, the community has gotten so much larger with social media, you know, somebody who's a lead on social media with the messages that they take out, take forward. Yeah. And, and Chad, I'm curious from, from your angle, I think I could foresee a lot of my farmer friends saying like, you know, I really like farming. I, I, I'm not really a big fan of data collection and reporting. How's that part of the process been for you? Has that been a challenge to kind of stay on top of the more administrative side of, of doing trials like this? Well, it, it's a lot easier now than it used to be. I'm guessing you're familiar with FieldView. That's, I guess, our main platform that I use on the farm. And why I like it is the guys are, it's easy for them to use the interface on the iPad. All they have to do is have it in the vehicle with them. Uh, Most of them, I can preload all the information. So if they go out and spray or if they're in the tractor seeding, it's something that I can monitor. And I know that all our data is recorded so that at the end of the year, it's easier to compile. Before that, it was basically uh, flagging out areas and you didn't have a weight wagon or some or a grain cart that had a weight system in it. It was very hard to really see any results other than if they were dramatic and uh, something that you could see with the naked eye. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And and to John's point earlier about you know being a leader in your community and, and do you get a lot of people asking you like, hey, what are you trialing this year, Chad? What's going on over there? You get you get a lot of questions about what's going on at your farm. 
I'm starting to. For the last three years, it's mostly been, do you have a golf course in your fields? Because I, I'm, I'm still old school and I, I like to flag all my trials just so I know where they are and when I can walk into them. But yeah, it started out that I was just kind of the crazy, crazy kid out in the neighborhood that was trying all these new things. But I think that, uh, you know, we're in a generation where prices are low and guys are going to have to start going out there and not doing just what their grandpas or dads did. They're going to have to, you know, forge their own path. And do you feel like you've gotten better at this kind of the trialing? And if so, what skills are you better at today than maybe you were when you first started it? I'm I'm still not as good as I'd like to be, <laughs> if that works. You know, I have a lot of computer skills that I need to brush up on. And I guess I'm not much of a social media guy. So um, when Intent made me get a Twitter page, it was probably one of the most scariest times in my life. But uh, other than that, I mean, you know, it, it's all a learning experience. I mean, once you do a few trials, you kind of know how to set them up and what you're looking for during the growing season. And you're being humble because I went through your Twitter ahead of this interview and you've got some some great content out there. So I think you're being a little bit humble on that part. Well, thank you. As you look toward the future, John, of Compass Mineral, what, what gets you most excited about some things that are coming down the pipeline there? Well, Tim, I had a very good friend of mine once tell me that the the educated of the future are those folks that understand how to learn, unlearn, and relearn. And just in the course of, I'm going to say 15 years, and I'm not going to go back any further than that, so many of the basics that were drilled into my head in college and in the first parts of my career, you know, things like how much nitrogen it takes to raise a bushel of corn, the need for sulfur as, you know, as fertility for, for row crops. You know, we were told, you know, you never, we'll never have to put on sulfur. Don't worry about it. Gosh, then somebody got the crazy idea, let's clean up emissions and not have so much sulfur going out into the environment. And it wasn't 20 years later when we started seeing sulfur deficiencies in, in field crops. I think that's a wonderful story from an environmental aspect, but it also just drives home the fact that just because the way I learned it one time that we don't need sulfur doesn't mean we'll never need sulfur. Same is very, very true with micronutrients. You know, we will never need micronutrients. Don't waste your time with micronutrients. And now we're learning how to tweak crops with applying just a small amount of micronutrient at the right time within the crop growth cycle that's allowing that crop to better utilize other nutrients that are already in the soil. So just a whole new mindset. It's just, it's invigorating. And to to be getting towards the, the end of my career, to see all kinds of new things like that on the horizon is so refreshing and so exciting. I love coming to work every day. It's just, it's a bright future for agriculture. Yeah, fantastic. And Chad, for you, you know, what's something you look 10 years down the road and, and you're excited about, or maybe something that you're a problem you're still hoping gets solved out there? You know, what, what, what do you hope exists in the future that maybe doesn't exist today for you? Well, I don't know about what exists and what doesn't exist because it seems like every year it just boggles my mind that some of these products are being invented. But, you know, the macro game used to be the big push. I mean, uh, you know, you needed to get your macronutrients correct in your soils to produce the highest yield as you could. Now we're starting to find out that, you know, everybody looked at that the top 
of the plant. I mean, you know, your, your stem, your leaves, your head of, you know, of that crop that you're growing, but the root structure and what it takes for the roots down below is something that I see as probably the biggest importance in the next 10 to 20 years. I mean, we've always been just pushing that, that the part of the plant we can see. Well, now it's starting to be a revolution where, you know, we're putting micros, we're putting PGRs, we're putting micronutrients into the mix, and we're able to expand that root growth. And what's underneath the soil is going to be probably the biggest part of my farming career, I think, is when it comes to growing our yield and growing our farm. Excellent. Well, guys, I don't always know what to ask. You know, sometimes I don't know what I don't know. So I know we're coming up on time here that I've asked of you, but, you know, what part of working together and, you know, essentially this series is on farmer adoption of new technology. So how, how does the, how does the technology get out there? How does the farmer respond and what's sort of that feedback loop between the two? So anything that big that we didn't cover that you'd like to share, I would love to hear from you now. You can start, John. <laughs> oh, okay. I was trying to be polite and let you go. <laughs> oh, no, I, I'm still oh, thinking. <laughs> okay. Well, that was my excuse. Oh, gosh. I, I think the whole farming, sociology of farming has gone in circles, and, and we're still going in a circle. And once we get to the top, it's probably going to continue. Years and years ago, you go back uh, 50, 60 years ago, farming was about communities. You had a lot of smaller farmers. They would get together. They would share ideas and work together to, to get better. And we kind of evolved away from that over the past, I'll just call it 50 years, in that farmers got bigger. They got a lot more competitive. And then next door neighbors may not share quite as much information with one another anymore because they were afraid of giving the neighbor, you know, an upper edge. And, and I really think we're we're looping back around, coming back up towards the towards the top again, where we're starting to have more collaboration between growers. Companies like Intent are able to help us bring growers together and have those conversations. And maybe they're not necessarily in the same neighborhood but they're probably facing similar challenges, whether they're trying to raise canola in North Dakota or trying to raise cotton down in, you know, Louisiana, Mississippi. You know, a lot of the challenges are the same. It's just a different growing season and a different name for the crop. But I think we're getting back around to the point of let's share together and let's, you know, let's, let's share experiences and, and some knowledge. Chad, that spark any, uh, any ideas in your head? Well, I have a lot of ideas. I don't know if I can put them all to you in the correct way or not. But no, I guess, you know, first of all, the, the data thing, the data side of farming, it's kind of like the worldwide internet was 10, 15 years ago. I mean, now that we can actually collect data, it opens up so many doors and so many opportunities. Before we were just farming and we saw the end result. Now we can see every part before that and uh, analyze it. And it, it's just tremendous. And I mean, you know, going off of the neighbor's deal, you know, I think that as agriculture as a whole, we're starting to find out that this generation of growing, growing, growing is probably not as sustainable as most guys really wanted to, you know, be. I mean, when prices are lower, you need to produce the most that you can out of the acres that you farm. And, you know, as a smaller farmer myself, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of, I, I think I have the edge when it comes to profitability compared to some of these large farmers, because, uh, you know, if you can produce double what an acre of what they can, I mean, that 
you know, it, it's, 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 it's mind blowing where you can go with the farming operation. But, you know, the, these new companies like John and Compass have been just um, amazing for our operation. I mean, we like to be able to talk to these companies. I mean, it does us no good if we're going to get a product and trial it and never hear from them. And, you know, for them to sit there and want the information and actually use that information and make themselves better from what we can give them is just just huge. So I, I have so much good to say about Compass because not only uh, uh, are they a company that's going to grow and be successful in the future, but it's somebody that, you know, their philosophy and how they do business is just, I, I, I really feel that all the other aid companies and companies around the world should take note because, you know, it's, it's a relationship that I never seen before. Thank you, Chad Rebelke and John Grandin from Compass Minerals for taking the time to show us how adoption happens in agriculture. There's a lot of layers to this, and I go back to what Randy said earlier about it starts with the farmer. And farmers like Chad and collaborative agronomists like John on the industry side, I think, serve as a great example for all of us to look to about how we might better accelerate adoption in agriculture. If you have a product or service that you're trying to get in the hands of more farmers, I highly recommend you reach out to the folks at Intent. Randy, Kevin, the whole team are fantastic. Or if you're a farmer and you would like to do trials on your farm like Chad does, find them at intent.ag. That's I-N, the number 10, the letter T, dot ag, intent.ag, or at farmertrials.com. You can also meet them at the World Agritech Innovation Summit if you're going to be there in San Francisco, March 17th and 18th. In fact, I think Randy Barker is on the speaker lineup. So if you're going to be there, make sure you get connected with the folks who are intent there as well. Thank you for your time and your attention. As always, I welcome your feedback on how I can better improve this show for you. But we'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music.